All right, if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to open that up or turn it on, however you've got it there with you, and go to the book of Esther, which is right in front of Job, which is kind of near Proverbs, which is near Psalms. So like if you can find the middle and then flip back a little bit, you'll find Esther. While you get situated, um, one quick announcement type thing as, as we get started here. And that's that beginning next week, uh, so a week from today would be uh, June 18th, we'll still have Thursday night service because we'll still be continuing to record. But on the 21st, which is Father's Day, but that Sunday morning, we will also uh, begin having one service on Sunday mornings. That service will be at 945, um, our, second, our normal second service time. And so then going forward, we'll continue to have Thursday night at 6.30, Sunday mornings at 9.45. And we'll continue to listen to and adjust as Clay County uh, works its way through their uh, recovery and reopening process. And we'll continue to update everyone as we make shifts to what it looks like to come to a service. Um, And as we continue to monitor how many people are coming to services, we'll continue to let you know when and if we add. But for the foreseeable future, there'll be one service Thursday nights at 6.30, one service Sunday mornings at 9.45. The other piece on that is that every week, registering will open up at, uh, in the mornings on Friday, and it'll run through Thursdays at 3 p.m. So for those who are in the room tonight, that means that you could register for next week's services starting tomorrow morning. If you're watching this on Sunday morning, that link is already available and already open for you to either register for Thursday or for Sunday. So um, that's what things are going to look like going forward for a little while. One service on Sundays, one service on Thursday nights, both of those still limited to 200 people. And just as like a general word going forward, uh, 200 people is the max we're going to be able to do until uh, we're out of any statement by the county that social distancing measures need to, to be in place. And so the every other row of chairs and three chairs in between people, that is going to be our reality for a while, for as really as until I guess there's a vaccine or a treatment um, or until Clay County says all the restrictions are lifted. So 200 people per service is going to be our normal reality for quite some time. And we'll let you know as we add services um, as people, more and more people feel comfortable coming to join us in person. So um, with that being said, I'm going to pray for us and then we will jump into looking at uh, the book of Esther, the first nine verses. If you're watching this on Sunday morning, you can just go ahead and pause the video and pray there in the room that you're in, uh, whether that's by yourself or with your family or with some others. Go ahead and pause and pray. We'll pray here and then we'll all jump in together. Take a second there in in your seat or in your living room and answer the question, how did you end up where you are right now? And I don't mean like, well, I drove my car to the church or I woke up, left my pajamas on and clicked play. I mean, bigger picture, how did you end up 
in the season of life that you're in, in the circumstances that you're in, what was it that brought you to this particular place at this particular time? I'll tell you how I ended up here. I started having uh, like monthly lunches with Fred Ellermeyer. He's a, a member of our congregation, has been for a long time. He was a member of the leadership team at the time. I started having monthly lunches with him about 12 months, maybe 15 months into my time as youth pastor here. Uh, the initial intent of those was pretty simple. He was... Uh, just wanted to check in on how student ministry was going. He wanted to check in on how I was doing in the role. It turned into kind of some mentoring, and he was very gracious to teach me lessons in leadership and uh, overseeing people and decision-making. And he was just incredibly, incredibly gracious, and a friendship developed there. And we would talk about everything from sports to the future and what we saw for ourselves down the road. And one day... We sat down to eat at a, at a barbecue spot downtown, and before we even did any of kind of the pleasantries of like, oh, the weather, you know, Fred looked at me and he said, what do you see yourself doing five or 10 years from right now? And I remember thinking to myself, uh, well, I'm not 100% sure if I see myself still doing youth ministry but I don't know what would be in place of that. Like, I knew it was a role where I wanted to, to teach and to study scripture and then to impart that. Uh, but I think in my mind, I was hoping for a role where I could primarily do that task and none of the other tasks associated with being a lead pastor because those seemed daunting and draining and budgets. Like that to me seemed awful. And I said that pretty explicitly, like, well, I see myself doing a teaching role, but probably definitely not like a lead pastor, senior pastor kind of thing. And he didn't even flinch and he didn't even hesitate. And he just looked at me dead in the eye and he said, would you pray about that? And in my mind, I said, I will absolutely pray about that, but I'm confident the Lord's answer is not lead pastor. But yes, Fred, I'll pray. Some time went by. We circled back around to the conversation a few times. And then one day I asked him, I said, Fred, you know, we talk about a lot here. It's pretty normal for you to want to know what my, you know, ambitions or whatever uh, word you would want to use there are for the future. But why are you so persistent on this? And he said, well, um, the leadership team is in some conversations about what it would look like when Kim retires. Um, Kim Mays, who planted LCF, he was the pastor here for 30 years. The leadership team's in conversations about what it would look like to transition to whoever the next pastor is going to be. And we're right about to sign uh, a contract with a consulting firm that would help us do a nationwide search, but I just can't get over thinking that maybe you are the person for LCF. And I laughed at him, like to his face. This is a man I respect a lot. And I laughed at him. And things 
played out. Melody and I continued to pray. One conversation led to another conversation with growing sort of uh, groups of people within the leadership team and growing earnestness and seriousness and in, in whether or not that could actually happen. And I say all of that to say this, every month, it just felt like lunch. Like driving to whatever restaurant Fred and I were going to meet at just felt like lunch. It just felt like any other meeting that I would go to with someone in our congregation. And then all of a sudden, here we were. And there was no doubt in my mind and in uh, Melody and I like collectively that this is what the Lord was doing. And there was Uh, the leadership team grew to feel the same way. And it was all in the hands of God, which means all of those meetings were way more than just lunch. Esther is a book about ordinary moments in the hands of the Lord, about how seemingly mundane interactions in our lives are often the extraordinary means that God uses to achieve his purposes and to fulfill his covenant promises. The book of Esther has much to say about the way we view the events of our daily lives and the way we act in response to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. The seemingly monotonous reality of life in this broken world is wildly, eternally, providentially significant. We spend so much of our lives waiting for God to do something magnificent, to speak in some sort of booming voice from the heavens that makes everything crystallize into absolute clarity within our minds and within our hearts, when all the while he's orchestrating the magnificent through the mundane. That's what we're gonna see in the book of Esther. One commentator says it this way, the Esther story is is an example of how at one crucial moment in history, The covenant promises God had made were fulfilled not by miraculous intervention, but through completely ordinary events. Tim Keller says it like this. When you see one of the 10 plagues in the book of Exodus, you know that's God. But when King Ahasuerus throws a party and starts bragging, you don't say, wow, there's God at work. But the book of Esther is trying to tell you, don't make that mistake. His silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not abandonment. His silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not abandonment. There's a common saying when you're putting together, whether it be like an event or you're planning something large, that the devil is in the details, that like that's the thing that's gonna ultimately trip you up. Esther displays for us that in the daily grind of life, God is in the details and he's in them powerfully, intentionally, and for his purposes. The book of Esther is a narrative account which means it's a story. And if you were to pick up a novel and read a novel, you would read it very differently than you would a nonfiction book. You read a novel with an open imagination. You read a nonfiction book with a pen and maybe like an open notebook to take some notes. An Old Testament narrative is different than a New Testament epistle. And as such, it has to be read differently in order to be understood correctly. The epistles of the Bible just come right out and tell you, this is what God is like, and this is what it means to live in response to what God is like. But biblical narratives, particularly Old Testament biblical narratives, are ancient Hebrew narratives. 
They don't function like that. The author shows you rather than tells you. The author shows you who the characters are by their actions, and so you have to pay attention. The author shows you who God is by his actions within the narrative, and so you have to pay attention. Let me give, as we jump into this, and we'll continue to kind of do some of this as the series goes along, but let me give just two tips for reading and understanding and rightly applying biblical narratives. The first one is this, keep everything in biblical context the whole story you're reading, and each scene within that story. That means this. The fact that Esther takes place at the very end of the Old Testament narrative account, it's one of the, it's one of the latest books before there's a 400-year period of silence leading up to the birth of Jesus. Because Esther falls there, there's a different thing going on in the big story of what God is doing than say when Abraham is called by God and God makes a covenant with him. And knowing the difference is important to understanding what's happening. It's also important in that vein to remember that the Bible, big picture, is telling you about God. It's not telling you about Esther. It's not telling you about Daniel or David or Joseph or Paul or Peter. It's telling you about God. So the narrative of Esther, while full of characters, and we'll, inter- we'll introduce one of them this evening, this morning, the goal is not to walk away and know a bunch of stuff about Esther. The goal is to walk away and know something powerfully true about God, who he is and the way he works within the world. The second tip is this. Read each individual scene in light of the story's primary theological truth. We'll talk about this in a moment, but every little snippet or scene in the book of Esther is painting one larger picture about who God is. And when we read the first nine verses, like we're going to do today, it's important we keep the big picture in mind. So let me just work with those two things as it relates to the book of Esther very briefly. Keep everything in biblical context. Think big picture about the story of the Old Testament. And you could do this by just looking at the table of contents in your Bible. God calls Abraham and forms a people and says that from that line of people, God is going to bless all the nations of the earth. That is the book of Genesis. Then God builds and preserves, leads, and loves those people faithfully, providing them with a land of their own and the law by which they are to live in relationship with him. That's generally what happens in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Everything goes all sorts of astray. The Israelite people, Abraham's descendants, are led by both judges and kings who don't lead them to love and to follow Yahweh, their God. That's Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings. God sends them prophets in order to warn them that they need to repent. They're taken into exile because they don't repent. Then they're scattered from their promised land. That happens in Second Kings chapter 17 to one half of the Israelite people. It happens to the other half in Second Kings chapter 24. Then, while they're in exile... Babylon takes them into exile. The Persian Empire takes over the the Babylonian Empire and a king comes to power named Cyrus. And Cyrus tells the Israelite people, you can go back home and rebuild your city and rebuild your temple. And some of the Israelite people go from where they are, scattered all over the place, back to Jerusalem. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell that story. Esther is roughly contemporary 
to Ezra and Nehemiah a little bit later, a little bit on the backside of those two. And similar to Daniel, the story is about Jewish people living in a foreign land. Daniel was in Babylon. Esther is in Persia, the empire that took over after the fall of the Babylonians. Some of the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem in order to rebuild their temple and their city, and some of them have stayed in Persia. And what is amazing is that Esther captures the story of how God preserves his people and thus his covenant promise to redeem a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue through those people He preserves them through a sovereign action in a foreign land among a foreign people. The preservation of God's people, including those who went back to Jerusalem, comes about through God's redeeming work through some faithful Jewish individuals living in a foreign place. That's the big context. What's the main theological point? Esther, as a book, provides an illustration of a truth that the Bible states explicitly in other places, and that is that God is sovereign. And God works with his people through his sovereignty and through providence. We could pull any number of scriptures from the Old Testament and the New Testament to talk about God's sovereignty. But since Daniel and Esther are similar in their nature, I took a verse from Daniel. Chapter 4, verse 35. God does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? In fact, I would encourage you as a bit of homework to read the whole book of Esther from beginning to end in one setting. It would take you roughly 25 to 30 minutes. And each time you see something that looks like coincidence, make a little note in the margin of your Bible that that's not coincidence, that's sovereign providence. That's God doing something intentionally among his people. When we talk about Providence, God working providentially. What we mean is that God is always at work, often in in invisible and inscrutable ways, both to powerfully preserve and sovereignly govern all of his creatures in light of his eternal purposes. God is always at work. Sometimes that work is invisible. It seems behind the scenes, but he's working powerfully to preserve his people and sovereignly govern them in light of his eternal purposes. So while reading Esther at any point in the story, keep in mind that the big theological idea being modeled is that God is always working for his purposes. One statement that's just gonna kind of guide the way we approach this book. It comes from a commentator who, uh, she's written an incredible commentary on the book of Esther. Her name is Karen Jovis. She says this. She says that God is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. Here's what's unique about the book of Esther among all the other books of the Bible. God's name is not once mentioned. The name Yahweh appears exactly zero times in the book of Esther. Uh, Some time ago, um, I should have looked at the date on this, but I didn't. But my parents took... Melody and I to see Hamilton. And anytime you go see a play or a musical, you get one of these playbills, right? And you can flip open to the middle and they'll give you a listing of the cast of characters there. You know who's never listed in the cast? The director. You know who's never named in the show? The director. No one stops midstream in a play and says, 
so-and-so is directing, and isn't he doing a wonderful job? That's pretty much the way the book of Esther works. God's not a cast member in the book of Esther. He is the director. God's not a cast member in any narrative in the Old Testament. Whether he's named or not, he's always the director. Here's what we're going to do. If you're watching at home, I want you to pause the video and read Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. One of the things that we want to do is continue to make our gatherings uh, more than a spectator event. And so rather than me just standing up here and reading Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, I'm going to actually let you do that with whoever you're sitting next to. If you're sitting alone, that's fine. Use your phone. Read, read the passage. If you're with your family, one person there in the row, read, read the passage and ask yourself this question. Kind of think about this while you're reading. What is it that the author of Esther wants you to know about King Ahasuerus? Now, it's possible that your translation says Xerxes, but if yours says Ahasuerus, you're gonna need to get comfortable saying that. So with me on three, we're all gonna say it together. One, two, three. Ahasuerus. Yeah, it's a, it's a mouthful, okay? So either pause the video or here in the room, take a second, take a couple minutes, read that passage, and then we'll continue on together. All right. Remember, the author doesn't usually come out and tell you anything about characters, show you. What we're going to do over the course of the first few weeks of this series is we're going to be introduced to the main human characters in the book of Esther. And we're going to see certain things about them that the author then uses in order to display to us something about God and what he's doing in this story. So what do we see about King Ahasuerus? Now, if you're curious why some versions say Xerxes and some say Ahasuerus, it's because Xerxes is the Greek translation of that king's name. Ahasuerus is the Hebrew version of that name, talking about the same person. It's just some translations go with one or the other. Xerxes is certainly easier to say. Here's what we're supposed to see about King Ahasuerus. Number one, he demands attention. He wants attention bad. Over the course of the book, you will see him grasp for it in a myriad of different ways. And so watch his actions over the course of the book. See them here in this passage. But also, in a different sort of way, Ahasuerus demands our attention. We should pay attention to him. There's something to be learned, not just about him, but also about ourselves and therefore how it is that we relate to God. How does he demand attention? Well, there's a level of arrogance here. He throws a 180-day party, six months of partying. I struggle with six hours of partying. He throws that party in order for people, officials, military rulers from all over his kingdom to come and see how wonderful he is. That's the whole purpose. Look at the way the author positions it. He rules over an area that's 127 provinces from India to Kush. The author is underscoring his arrogance by choosing the largest number possible to describe the area that he rules. Normally, 
in other Old Testament books, a kingdom would be described in terms, in terms of what would be called a satrapsy, ruled by a satrap. A province would be like counties inside of that. So rather than saying the president of the United States rules over 50 states, this would be like saying the president of the United States rules over 3,141 counties. Same amount of space, but one sounds a lot bigger. Notice the way the party is described. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom, the magnificent splendor of his greatness for 180 days. His. His greatness, his kingdom, his wealth, his magnificence. And then what does he do at the end of the 180-day party? He throws a seven-day party to celebrate how great the 180-day party was. As if what everyone need. Imagine the, the servants in his palace who had just cleaned up every morning for 180 days, finding out that that party was so great, I'm going to throw a week-long party to celebrate it. And not just the officials from the kingdom, but everyone is invited. Come see how great I am. He's arrogant. He wants everyone to see his abundance. White and purple are important here. Keeping something clean and white was very difficult. Dyeing something purple was incredibly expensive. There are marble columns, gold and silver couches. Is that even comfortable? Like, I don't want to sit on that. Mosaic pavement of feldspar, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Every wine goblet looks different. They're like snowflakes. Every one of them is unique. Royal wine is flowing like water. This description of the setting is the longest description of a physical setting in the Old Testament outside of the way that the temple or the tabernacle is described. You're supposed to see that the king wants everybody to know how wealthy he is, how much stuff he has. And then he demands attention by his authority. For some context, when you went to a party in this era of the world, you only ate if the king ate. You only drank if the king drank. If you went to a party and the food was served and the king never took a bite, nobody took a bite. The king never took a drink, nobody took a drink. And so in the middle of the passage, verse 8, he gives a decree. There are no restrictions. Think about the ridiculousness of that. The king makes a rule that you can make your own choices. See my authority. I can control whether or not you have the ability to just make your own choice about drinking. He demands attention. That's the cry of King Ahasuerus. Look at me. See how wonderful I am. See how much stuff I have. See the control that I exert. And so here's the question. Do you know anyone who sounds similar to a Hasherish. Before you think of someone else, you better be thinking of yourself a little bit. When we read narratives, our knee-jerk reaction is to position ourselves as the hero of the story. We're David slaying Goliath. We're Joseph saving his people. In this case, we're Esther walking into the king and having our, for such a time as this moment, 
One of the unique aspects of Esther is that there really isn't a moral example that we would be tempted to uphold and say, just be like this person. They're all just unbelievably broken. The story is full of sin and brokenness and everybody's a participant. Instead, we're forced to look at all of that sin and all of that brokenness and all of the flaws within each of the individuals in this story and realize that we aren't all that different. We need to be able to recognize that sin and brokenness for what it is and admit that we are no better. We look at the attention-craving nature of a Hashuarish and from our position, we chuckle in a pious sort of hypocritical condemnation. And in the words of Nathan, when he visits David after his affair with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, we ought to be saying to ourselves, you are that man. You are that person. Because the Ahasuerus in each of us demands attention. Again, literally, there's a part of us in every sinful, broken human heart that is clamoring for attention. And that part of us needs to be looked at and thought about biblically. Think of our arrogance. The building of a portfolio or a LinkedIn page. The stacking up of a resume or letters after our name with degrees. There's nothing wrong with pursuing education. But if when someone fails to call you doctor, you get upset, that might say more about you than it does about your education. the pumping of our children into activities, not just that they might have fun and potentially find what it is that they excel at, but also that people might look at us and say, look at you because of your child. The social media world that we live in that posts pictures in order to say, see what I did. See what I think. See how right I am. See how smart I am. We see the arrogance of King Ahasuerus and we ought to think to ourselves, I am that man. Abundance. That house you bought that was more than you could realistically afford. The stuff you purchase on credit and can't keep up with. Most of us in America have more stashed away in boxes in our basements than the majority of the world has to their name. We own more clothing that we never wear than most people in the world own at all. Our pets have more toys than most of the world's children. Why do we do that? Because at some level, our flesh convinces us that we are what we have. I am what I wear. What, I give, what I'm able to give to and provide for my family is a reflection of who I am. The status I portray says something about my worthiness. We see the uh, the abundance of King Ahasuerus, and we ought to think to ourselves, I am that man. Authority. We may not be the king or the ruler of the world's foremost superpower, but we want control of whatever the size of our world is. Control the variables. Manage the situation. Don't tell me what to do. Why has so much of the last three months been so hard for so many people in America? Because someone else has been trying to tell us what to do. And we want authority. We should see a Hashawarish longing for that sort of control and look inward and say, I am that man. When we see the story correctly in the context and in its theological position, even the description of a Hashawarish ought to 
lead us to praise. Why? Because if God could work providentially through that man to preserve his people and uphold his covenant promises, he can do it through me. And that should just knock me down in humility. To say, behold the greatness of the God who sovereignly and providentially moves forward his purposes on behalf of his people through someone like me. Through a person who demands the attention that only God deserves. From a person whose arrogance needs to be humbled by the sight of Jesus on a cross. Through a person whose desire for abundance needs to be knocked down by the realization that the greatest treasure that I have is that Jesus died on my behalf. From a person who demands authority and tries to steal it from the king of the universe. God works providentially through people like that. But there's more. There's a way to be freed from the Ahasuerus that works inside, or that lurks inside each of us. And that way is through the gospel. The gospel is the answer to the attention craving Ahasuerus inside of our hearts. All attention belongs to Jesus. And when we give it, our sinful desires to seek it for ourselves start to fade. The only way we learn to find joy in not having the attention on us is to find something worthy of giving the attention to. It's exhausting to clamor for attention all the time. But we can get off that train. We don't have to constantly beat our own drum. We don't have to constantly chase the accumulation of stuff. We don't have to constantly try to manage and exert control. It's exhausting because those are runaway trains to nowhere. We'll always feel like we need bigger achievements, more stuff, more authority. And the only exit from that train is in the gospel. And by grace, we're drawn into it. By grace, we're saved by it. By grace, we learn to ever set our attention upon it. Who is it that draws us near to the Lord in saving relationship? It's the Lord that does that. And he only does it in those who are willing to admit that they need a savior. You want the ultimate answer to your pride? It's that you had to be saved and that Jesus was the only means by which that salvation could happen. James 4, 6 tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's little more that ought to humble the pride in a human heart than the knowledge of knowing that said human heart needed to be saved at one point. The answer for our pride and arrogance is attention in the right place and that place is only in the gospel. The gospel is the answer to our clamoring for abundance. The parable of the hidden treasure and the priceless pearl in Matthew 13 tell us that if we're to be defined by a possession, it ought to be our greatest possession. And that possession is the gospel, that we would sell everything in order to have it. We are not what we have. The answer to our longing and clamoring for abundance is attention in the right place. And that place is only in the gospel. The answer for our longing for authority and, a power, and power is attention in the right place. I'm not in charge. The book of Esther is going to make it clear. We're not in charge. Even this king is not in charge. Praise the Lord that we don't have to be. 
The answer for the Ahasuerus that lurks inside each of us is attention on the gospel. That's the only answer. The grace of God helps us see that Jesus deserves our attention and enables us to put it there rather than just catering to the flesh inside of us that tries to demand attention from the world. The gospel reverses our attention-seeking and turns it into attention-giving. One more piece about Esther as a whole as we close. The book is full of reversals. Changes in position, changes in decrees, changes of heart, changes of outcomes. Those all point to the greatest reversal in all of human history, that God in Christ has made it so that sinful human beings can be made righteous. God preserved his people in the days of Esther that he might bring forth the birth of his son and build a people in the church. What seemed like the possible death of the Jews, instead, God used to guarantee the birth of a savior and the salvation of God's church. He did that through the son of God who stepped out of heaven into flesh. He did it through a humble man rather than a mighty earthly king. He did it through a sinner's cross rather than a commander's battle. He did that through the eternally innocent taking a place of the eternally guilty. He did that through the resurrection of a man who was put to death. The reversals of Esther point to the great reversal that God has both given to his people by his grace through the death of his son and the great reversal that has worked inside those of us who are saved and transformed by his grace. There's an Ahasuerus lurking inside all of us. Longs for the attention that only God deserves. And its answer is only ever found in the gospel. And to the praise of God's glory, he will work through arrogant, abundant, abundance-seeking, authority-craving, sinful human beings in order to sovereignly and providentially work out his plans and achieve his purposes for all of humanity. We're gonna see how that plays itself out through King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. But my prayer is that we would all start to look at our own circumstances a little bit differently. That what we think is a coincidence when we bump into someone at the supermarket or well, we don't bump into people anymore. When we see someone from six feet away at the supermarket, what we think is a coincidence when the person that we were just thinking about a little bit earlier in the day happens to send us a text message, those are providential moments. And if we're the people of God, we ought to respond to those moments in a particular sort of way. My prayer is that God would show us what that looks like as we make our way through the book of Esther. We're gonna close uh, in worship. And so I'm gonna invite the team to to come up. You can close your Bible, put it away and stand up as we pray and enter into worship. God, I thank you that though there's more Ahasuerus in me than I would want to admit, that you are sovereign over all, that you've worked throughout all of time through broken, sinful people who long for the attention that only you deserve. God, you work through those people to achieve your purposes. God, though we're arrogant, you're able to work through us. Though we crave abundance, you're able to work through us. 
Though we think we have all the authority, God, you're able to work through us. And not only that, but by looking to the gospel, God, there's an answer for our arrogance. There's an answer for our clamoring for abundance. There's an answer for our desire for authority, God. And when we keep our attention on you, we don't have to try to get attention on ourselves. God, as we work our way through the book of Esther, I pray that your spirit would make that clear to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.